This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Steven. Are you like still swimming in the ice cold ocean every morning now or what? No, I did it once and then... Uh, you realized it's got, the ice... Uh, <laughs> I got a I got a severe cold and then I'm like no, no I'm kidding. Oh. Um, I only did it once. Actually, I want to do it again, and I almost went yesterday because it was such a nice day. But uh, anyway, yeah, I got to get back on that program. Some of the best times I ever had swimming is I've mentioned before that we had a cabin on the coast when we were growing up as kids, and we would absolutely love it when it was stormy because the water would churn up and the water is actually feels warmer give that a whirl it's it's crazy how how that uh works but yeah that was a good time cool how's uh how's sheep training going what uh what's what's going on with that i'm seeing sheep in videos and podcasts and stuff like that i'm not i'm not going on a sheep hunt this year but uh i'm, I'm still trying to trying to keep in well relative uh we'll call it shape. I'm nowhere near as hard as training as I was two years ago for, for the hunter last year. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's coming along. Uh, got into a little bit of a workout program now to try and limber up and build some muscle and some endurance. And yeah, like I, I said to you before we started recording, it felt like I got hit by a truck at about 2 AM last night when I got up to use the can. And so I know it's working. So yeah, yeah. What, it's you, hard to believe six weeks till the owner, oh, owner right? Like, already, so, already, right? Yeah, it, I, I'm excited. Haven't seen anybody going up the University Hill yet. Like uh, normally, every year by now, you're seeing people just motoring up there with big packs on, but I haven't seen anybody yet because, well, the weather's been kind of shitty here. It's been yeah. pissing rain, and but well, that doesn't matter on a hunt, right? If uh, if you're going to be out there, you got to be ready for it. So yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So um, on this podcast, we have Josh Hamilton. He's a Wild Sheep Society BC director, and he's been leading our Northern Burns. Um, Josh dives into that stuff. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, I'm not going to let – I'm not going to steal Josh's thunder. I'll let you guys listen to, you know, what he talks about and some of the cool stuff that's going on around that. Um, but you will we'll notice towards the end of the podcast, we talk about, you know, how our funding model is so important for the work that we're doing on the landscape and uh, – um, so it's it's timely that we'd mention that our our we have the Corlane rifle raffle going on right now. It's an RMR rifle, uh, beautiful setup, custom rifle built by uh, them out of uh, out of the North Country there. And uh, this will the money from the the proceeds from that will go straight back on the ground for burns in the north for our habitat work for um, the great work that's being done to support stone sheep in northern British Columbia. RMR is Rocky Mountain Rifles, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's their yeah. proprietary brand, and right. uh, I actually don't own one, uh, but they're freaking awesome. I'd love to. I'd love to get my hands on one. Uh, I'm gonna have to save up a few more days. They're not. They're not. Uh, you're not your Canadian Tire special. They're not your your mama's gun. That's for sure. They're pretty special. <laughs> so uh, you know, good value. You know, for what they are. Um, but, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful setup. And, uh, yeah, this is a beautiful rifle. They've been supporting the society now for a couple of years and, um, just goes a long way for conservation work in the North. So. Oh yeah. It doesn't every, that, that, that raffles exclusively every penny goes to Northern projects, right? 
hundred percent. So, you know, we, we've always had this approach with the society is that the money we make in the North stays in the North. Um, you know, it's, uh, they've done the Northern fundraiser up there and we make sure that every penny that that's raised in those communities, stay in those communities. It's really important to, uh, the people in those communities, they've, they've told us that. So it's something we honor and, and this is no exception. So, yeah. We also got a couple other raffles too, right? We've got the stone glacier and the Zeiss optics one. Yeah, exactly. So three great raffles on the go right now. Thank you to everyone for supporting us on the, um, doll sheep hunt, uh, that sold out, um, well ahead of time. We, we had two more months on the clock on that one. So, Thanks to, well, certainly Kusawal Lake Outfitters for supporting us, but uh, obviously all of you that bought tickets and support us. Um, and again, the proceeds from that raffle are going to Northern BC. And uh, as you'll hear from Josh, it's much needed. There's some important work that's been done in the North this year. And uh, it's the support of uh, you buying tickets and uh, memberships and merchandise and, and supporting our fundraisers that allow that to happen. So pretty cool, man. Yeah, I've got my tickets for sure. So <laughs> I, I yeah, could use I'll, that Stone Glacier package. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, we talk about membership. How important is membership? is obviously very important. It's our lifeblood. It's what we do. Our members drive uh, what we do on the landscape. They drive wild sheep conservation in this province. Uh, we're incredibly blessed to have an incredible membership. Uh, we've got a very cool membership drive on right now. Um, our good friends over at... Wood Wheaton Supercenter in Prince George. Or as Don would say, beautiful and always sunny downtown Prince George. I look out my, <laughs> so I look, full of shit. I look out my window right now and it's it's overcast, so he's he's kind of right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, great support from Wood Wheaton on that. Uh, they're underwriting that membership drive in first place, the winner of that membership drive. So all you need to do is sign up for a membership. You can buy a one-year, you can buy a life, you can buy a three-year, you can buy a family, you can buy a Monarch membership, um, and the more you spend, the more entries you get, and we're going to send, well, Wood Wheaton's going to send somebody fishing on the Fraser River for gigantic sturgeon. So great opportunity to go fish the uh, uh, Fraser River. Great job, great opportunity to support conservation and be part of a conservation organization that's doing stuff on the landscape. If you've never caught a sturgeon you and you fish, Hell, even if you don't fish, it is a level of power that you have to feel to comprehend. First time I ever did it, it was like, all right, set the hook. And boom, it was, you'd swear you'd hooked a log. And then the log takes off and jumps. <laughs> it's insane. And they're an absolutely beautiful fish too. When you get out of the boat and in, into the water with them, it's 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 almost spiritual for lack of a better term like you you've caught sturgeon before in the jurassic right i've never had the opportunity to no? fish at the jurassic as a volunteer uh, oh. but i've gone uh, my dad took me on a trip once and uh yeah uh, unbelievable and they're such good eating oh wait <laughs> <laughs> not in bc just for the record they are catch and release only you cannot there's no bag limit they're protected so uh you can't kill a sturgeon in bc don't do it um, but the word is, is they're pretty darn good eating. I've never you, eaten them. You but, can get them uh, farmed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah, so. yeah the, the ones here in BC are catch and release. And because of programs like that, we have a, a hell of a sustainable fishery here. The guide, the guides down there, they, they kick butt, they, they catch, release, they tag, they, uh, scan, scan them for chips. And yeah, there's a ton of money that goes into them and they, they, 
they care. So yeah, it's a hell of a hell of an opportunity there to, as you said, join a great organization, catch a great big fish or three or four. Yeah, awesome. Uh, last thing going on is we've got two events coming up on Friday night in Langley. We've got Women's Shaping Conservation. If you're a lower mainlander, so this is an exclusive opportunity to see the Wild Sheep Society BC's new film transmission. We've talked about it on this podcast. Uh, it's a beautiful film. I've watched it five or six times. Um, it's it's going to change the way you think about wildlife. It's gonna It's going to evoke emotion, I promise you. Um, and this is your exclusive opportunity to see it. it's a private screening on the 17th in Langley women shaping conservation is hosting an event there. Uh, the film star, Dr. Helen Schwanch is going to be in and, uh, she's going to be in the house. She's going to be answering questions. Uh, Renee Thornton from, uh, wild sheep foundations, women hunts going to be there and we're going to watch those films. It's going to be a great night. Um, so check it out then on Saturday night on the 18th. So in a couple days, we're going to be up in Kamloops for our mountain mentorship event, uh, Bill Jex is going to be in the house doing some horn aging. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of packs there. We got a very cool raffle. We got a Stone Glacier raffle going on. Uh, Stone Glacier 6900 Sky Telus um, from our conservation partner, Stone Glacier. Uh, you're going to have a chance to win that thing. Uh, tons of giveaways, as we always do. Uh, door prizes. We have dinner. Um, we have transmission again. You can see the film transmission there. So two great events coming up, 17th and 18th. All of this information, go to the homepage, wildsheepsociety.com, and there's links on the homepage. You can go to the membership. For a membership purchase, you can go to the events. There's a ton of stuff. So uh, great opportunity. Um, come check it out. Now off to episode 78 with Mr. Josh Hamilton. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Uh, so this is one of the first times where I get to say Mr. Hamilton's. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no relation. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Josh. It's great to have you back. I know you've been on a couple times and uh, always learn something every time I talk to you and especially on these long podcasts when we actually get to sit down and talk about some important stuff and the conservation work that's going on. And so let's, let's start off just, you know, for our guests, I know some people are new listeners, just uh, let's give us uh, the quick and dirty on Josh Hamilton and conservation and wild sheep BC. Uh, yeah. Josh Hamilton um, live up here in the North near Fort St. John and Charlie Lake. Um, I've been a director with the sheep society going on my fifth year this year and yeah, just enjoying it. Uh, crazy about, crazy about sheep and and uh and hunting trapping pretty much anything outdoors i guess i don't really how to describe myself but that's uh that's what i what i enjoy doing i guess well you're certainly a man of many talents right you're a conservationist you're a hunter uh guide uh tanner uh yeah the list goes on and on and on it's it's you're a jack of many <laughs> trades i will say yeah it's kind of I don't know, never stop learning. That's what I always say. Like always, I go take a deep dive into something for a while and then see where it goes and see how it fits me. And 
I've done so many different things. I feel like over the years that, you know, some things I forgot about. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the cool thing is with the society, you know, people come to our show and they see you up there and, uh, you know, like a couple years ago, you were, uh, doing some MC work and, and kind of the face of the, you know, the North. And, um, but you know, what people don't realize is all the, the work that the, the hard work, the real hard work that goes on behind the scenes. And, um, you know, you've been spearheading a really, really important committee that we have is our industrial, uh, in, indigenous relations committee. Um, easy for me to say. So that's, that's been a huge amount of work and such an important part of what we're doing, um, in BC here right now on the landscape. Um, and then one that's really, really, really important is the projects work you've been doing. So, um, you know, you know, Chris, Chris Barker's our projects chair and does a ton of work, uh, but the northern stuff, the bulk of that's done by yourself and Robin. So let's talk about some of that projects work and dive into that. And you know, what's the most important thing that you're working on right now with rela- relations to projects in the north? Uh, well, I guess I'll just back up there a bit. I think, uh, I mean, for all the directors and anyone involved in the society, like just trying to find your place to fit, you know, where you can get work done. There was always times where you have to kind of step up and fill in, you know, in some of those things. Like, I, I don't really know, like, the MC and stuff. That was terrible. But, you know, somebody's got to step up and do it. I really find, like, the the behind-the-scenes work it suits me a bit better. Uh, the projects is good just because I really am passionate about projects, and I usually try to focus just on habitat stuff. Uh, I try not to get lost in some of the rest of it. And, yeah, the Indigenous Relations Committees, I've always... Uh, I've always believed that's probably one of our more important roles. Um, and it's more relationship building than anything else. But uh, for projects, you know, Chris Chris Barker does a phenomenal job, like uh, kind of leading us through how how we do projects through the society, where how we fund stuff and, and what different variety of things we look at, whether it's... Um, Land, land ac- conservation land acquisition or disease support with disease projects, uh, monitoring, and then kind of into the habitat projects. And it's such a big province that like, for a long time, we kind of, we started to talk, talk about, you know, no sheep herd left behind, right? And trying to focus on what were limiting factors for different herds across the province and trying to find those baselines and what ones are in trouble. And this is just kind of something we have to learn as a society. That knowledge is out there and like our ministry and the biologists do a pretty good job of being aware of and trying to do all that within the capacity that they have. But for us as a society to be able to do work uh, that we feel is important, um, we kind of have to be able to figure all that out ourselves and then know where to move accordingly on these projects. So that's, that's kind of like when we have a projects call, we go through region by region, herd per herd, what we're working on, what the updates are. Uh, yeah, it's pretty, they're long meetings. They go just as long as our board meetings, but uh, it's pretty informative and it's pretty neat to see where it's where it's come from to where it is now. That's for sure. Yeah, very cool. So, uh, you know, there, there's a, a lot of different, things going on and you know in the south we're always talking about uh, the disease work that's going on and that, uh, and that sort of stuff and um but uh you know for stone sheep uh, obviously that disease is not is not as big an issue so what are the main things that you guys are concentrating up there uh, maybe talk about the main projects that you've been involved in the health herd assessment stuff 
And uh, I think you get some really exciting news to share about, and I'm going to let you tell that story mm-hmm. as opposed to me on, on the work that you guys have, have done here this spring in the North. Yeah. Well, I mean, for stolen sheep and well, Northern sheep altogether, if your isolation has been uh, one of the supporting factors for sheep, everything's pretty remote, right? Um, there's not a lot of access points in these areas and that's kind of served sheep over time over the last hundred years, different from our bighorns in the South. Um, so like lots of our limiting factors would be natural factors as far as habitat and predation would be probably the two, the two key things. Um, some things we can control, some things we can't. And I think it's kind of always trying to come back to like, if you have this vast expanse of wilderness and you actually think that you can do something or manage it is kind of, you know, uh, a tall order. And I don't think we've done, we do very good at trying to, to achieve that. So then it came to looking at, um, different scenarios, I guess, and, and what's been done in the past and what things need to move forward. So there's been, there's been work done in the past on, on habitat work or more, I guess, burning, burning for sheep. Lots of times it was done sheep for elk. And I, one thing I'll say first is that I am not a scientist. Uh, there are many, a lot of hardworking people that, uh, look into this stuff all the time. And as a director, it's just kind of trying to connect dots and connect organizations to get projects moving forward. But I'm definitely not, uh, uh, not a scientist (laughs) i guess i'll just leave it at that but um for for sheep one of the things that i i've kind of grew up with i grew up in an area where fire was used quite often and and i've seen it i've seen it work and i've seen my whole life i've seen wildlife use uh habitat after a fire um it just seems to be more abundant uh they're attracted to it and i think how we use that uh just as humans is pretty interesting. And, and, and I think too much, the same thing as anything too much, uh, isn't ever a good thing. So it's kind of a balance, right? So my job, I think over the last four years is we were in, we were doing partner burns at the time with North Peace Rod and Gun Club, and they were mostly designed for sheep and elk. And we got into year one of a, of a, of a burn. And then at the year two, uh, the application didn't go forward. So it kind of came back to, okay, uh, why didn't it go forward? And, and you know, what what can be done still uh, in the future? So then it kind of, we kind of started to look at, we didn't really even know what areas need to be treated the most. And when you look at all northern BC, uh, what, what type of habitats would be treated by fire, how big they would be, there's all certain things as far as like... Uh, competitive grazing from elk. Uh, are they are going to attract elk into these places? Um, and you might think that that's not a bad thing, but in some of these areas, you could be uh, promoting elk populations in critical caribou habitat and increasing predation and all these other things that uh, we talk about all the time. So trying to find a perfect balance where you can benefit sheep, but you're actually not going to be detrimental to anything else. That's kind of a fine balancing act. Um and then with fire, it's kind of important. Uh, there, there, there's still many questions out there, I guess, is as far as soil degradation, um, vegetation response, uh, how much early cereal growth we're uh, providing each year. Um, 
the Northern Rockies, I think over, if you kind of look at it over evolution is kind of, uh, unique in its own way. And some of it isn't always been like a fire dependent ecosystem. So, but there are areas that have, I think, and, um, we're trying to just define that through a project that can show some of these areas can benefit from it and should benefit from it. Um, to benefit sheep and and other species. I think one thing that I think this project is really looking at is not as much where we've been through habitat management as about where we're going through climate change as well. We have these um, uh, big weather events. Uh, we're seeing some of the implications of that through Alaska and the Yukon, and we believe some of that's been happening here in BC. So if we have these climate change events or these uh, extreme weather events uh, throughout the winter or if we have um, places that vegetation is causing a reduction in alpine habitat or subalpine habitat that's going to reduce your forage and forage quality for a population throughout the winter and spring and into lambing season right so what what we're trying to do is find a way to really support sheep as much as we can through those times, like they're still going to have to paw through a long, dark winter, but coming out of that winter, do they have somewhere good that they can go? That's going to have, um, good nutrition and be plentiful enough to support what's there and make sure that we're getting good recruitment through those lambs. I guess that's through this project. These are the questions that we're trying to answer is, is how much burning is good? You know, when is that return fire interval? There's studies that show the return fire interval in the North Sea would be like 150 years naturally. And there's studies that show burning for sheep is beneficial like every five to seven years. So that's a big gap. Like, so if we're going to be planning for the future, where's our, where do we want to fit in that? And that's not to say that areas didn't burn more frequently within 150 years. That's an average, right? So, and you kind of have to read that with how much historical information we actually have. Uh, one of the interesting parts about this is trying to listen to, you know, the, the traditional and local knowledge, um, you know, learning from an indigenous community on what they believe some of the fires, how fire was used in the past. Uh, I really think that like some of these areas uh, that we see a lot of Chinooks throughout the winter, we have increased vegetation in some of these areas and we start to talk about like the genetic uniqueness of stone sheep and the refuge that they would have had through an ice period probably would have been very similar to some of these higher Chinook areas. So uh, I think these areas are just very important to be, you know, quality winter habitat and then looking into uh, making sure we know where it is, map it, measure it, see, know the quality that it is, design these prescribed burns and then um, kind of have that as a management tool going forward as we can, we can pick all these sites across the north and say, this is how often we're going to do them. We're going to start doing them now and through a five-year program and, and go from there. So I guess where, where we started to, to look is it was up to sheep, sheep societies. We kind of stuck our neck out and started flipping the bill for these um uh, trying to investigate this. We hired a biologist, Alicia Woods, uh, Ridgeline Wildlife Enhancement. Uh, she has a lot of fire experience. She's just been an invaluable resource for us. Uh, 
her father did a lot of was a ballast in the north and did a lot of prescribed fire uh, she's grown up with it just you know an absolute professional um and, and me and her and and uh, a representative from halfway lyle mortensen we all went out and started looking at these sites in in a burn window so this was i think 2019 we started in may we started going and looking what areas were open uh what do we think we could burn that time of year and where we were seeing sheep and then kind of going from there and then starting an application process through what was at the time uh, the ministry of flinro uh forest lands natural resources and rural development and then seeing what seeing what they'd like to see uh, based on size um you know outside critical caribou habitat uh how we were going to measure it so we started some applications and then we actually had to apply for funding. So we applied to Habitat Conservation Trust Fund for that original year to kind of get our, our, our project planning going. And they actually came back with really good feedback from their technical review committee. Not too many times do you get feedback where they let you kind of modify your project. But I think even HCTF really wanted to see a project like this succeed. So then it came down to, you know, are you looking to treat Habitat in high density areas, low density areas? Uh, are you looking to modify habitat or like enhance, retreat previously burnt habitat? Are you looking at conversion habitat? So all those key things kind of came into a factor uh, and they kind of gave us like four main watersheds that they'd like us to focus on. So we're still working within that. And then, and then kind of the setting out our goal of like where, how many, identifying these sites, getting them in the process in the queue of an application, knowing that it's going to take some time to go through the process with government to, to approve these. And then, and yeah, and then into the point to now getting them lit. So it's been a long process to get to here, but I think we've, any project I think of this scale, uh, I think we've done our due diligence properly. And I think the big things don't come easy. So hopefully this project can go on for a few years. And then at the outcome, we'll have some pretty serious questions answered, I think. And then also have a database of all these critical areas with a prescription plan. Um, you know, lots of pre-monitoring on these sites with camera traps, uh, winter and spring recruitment surveys, uh, vegetation analysis, soil analysis, or sorry, it's just soil like testing, not analysis. And um, yeah, and then and then getting support from from Halfway River First Nations has been great. Uh, Fort Nelson, Fort Fort Nelson First Nations has been great. Um, they've been coming along a lot of the of our trips with us, and then on UNBC. Uh, Dr. Heather Bryan, she was reviewing the approvals uh, from the HETF. So UNBC contacted us and wanted to get involved with the project as well, which is great because they're uh, going to bring on a grad student. That'll really help define what our questions are and how we're going to answer them with with the data that we're collecting. So it's a unique opportunity now. Someone can step in. We have two years of data. Um and now we can start to see some of the responses from the sites that we've burnt and then carry on going forward and see what it looks like. So yeah, it's awesome. I, I think I think we're at a point where we can kind of celebrate a little bit because we did, you know, out of, see 2020, we applied for 11 locations. And then 
through that process of, of planning and getting approvals, it wasn't until this year that we got four of those lit. Um, some didn't make it through the approval process. Some did, but we didn't actually have good weather conditions to be actually be able to do those burns. Some of the areas in the north received very high snowpack this year is like as much as 60% above average. So those sites just, you won't get a burn window. And that's the thing with this burning. We're not burning it just to burn it. We're burning it to get a certain response. So there's a few, you know, natural conditions that we want to meet. We want a certain air temperature. We want a certain relative humidity. Um, we want that woody debris to be able to burn enough to die off so that we're not having leafy aspens on there that we can actually grow more grass and then also get that proper nutrient flush from the grass into the soil, but not hot enough that we're actually causing any soil degradation. So like your burning window is so, so narrow and, you know, we're doing everything an hour and a half chopper flight from town or more. Uh, you know, these areas are going right across region seven B. So like our helicopter costs is a big thing, but just the logistics alone to try and monitor these sites with the weather, uh, to try and find that burn window, you know, keep being in, in close contact with BC wildfire and the ministry, uh, just to make sure we're meeting the conditions of our permits is kind of key. So yeah, I think it, we're very happy where we're at. Uh, I think we can take a small pause, but it's kind of right back to work. We applied for another 28 sites in 2021. So now we're still going through the technical review on those. So we should have a whole bunch more sites in the queue for next spring. And, and that's kind of the idea is that once we have these designed across the North, like whether you have a good spring here, or a bad spring there and, or vice versa, we'll always kind of have somewhere that we can be doing habitat work. And, uh, you know, I think there's so many things we can get talked to about limiting factors of sheep, but there's not many people out there uh, getting habitat work done. So I think, you know, kudos to, to Wild Sheep Society, I think. And, you know, and our members for support, <laughs> none of this stuff is cheap and when we have our northern events and i think even our southern events you know something that's pretty important to our members is is burns and predation is is two big things that we're all passionate about and i think we kind of intuitively understand as hunters and sometimes we just need to keep explaining ourselves over and over and that's where some of the science can come in and back that up uh you know when we were I guess I'll kind of take you through how our, our, our burning went. Um, but just being able to spend time in the mountains with some of the people that took part and kind of create that dialogue with whether it was, uh, you know, Dr. Brian from UMPC and we spent a whole day on the, on the mountain, just talking about sheep and habitat and what we're looking for and what we want to see and what we are seeing. Uh, and what we're seeing in different areas, whether it's the eastern slopes or the northern Rockies or into the Rocky Mountain, into the trench, like, or even into Region 6. Like, these are all different systems and they have different issues. But, you know, I think there's one thing is that you can always do across all of them is habitat. So that's pretty, pretty cool to be able to connect with these different, different views and different groups. Um, but yeah, 
we like I say, we got we got our approvals. Um, we did have to at first our permitting was from May first to May fifteenth, and here in the Peace Region, like it's very rare to be able to get a, a burn done early May or sorry, you know the last our last date we we're allowed to burn was May seventh, so we had to apply for an extension. Um, lots of the, the windows we were getting around is there was concerns about nesting birds on some of these locations. Um, that was something I think that maybe just wasn't considered in the past with the prescribed fire or was aware of. And just, I think what we see now is just our local knowledge knew that it wasn't taking place that time of year. Uh, but again, we had to prove that we took an orth, uh, well, I'm going to mess this up, an ornithologist. I'm pretty much a bird biologist out with us and they were able to, you know, listen for songbirds, do some sweeps, uh, kind of confirm us that no nesting was taking place at that time. And literally like when I got boots on the ground there, you could tell like one of the areas we had still had a heavy snowpack on top. Like we got out to go do vegetation samples and we were, you know, post holing across the top through the snowpack. Like there was a pile of snow still in some areas. So birds were not nesting, but, uh, so the, the kind of the scope kept changing and then we got our extensions to May 30th. So that kind of provided us with a burn window. We had a lot of rain this year, the weekend before we had like a <laughs> monsoon in the Fort St. John area. We had like 60 millimeters of rain over 36 hours, but, uh, North in the, in the, up in the mountains there, they didn't get the full, the full dumping of rain. So that was kind of nice. We did need it to warm up enough to get uh, air temperatures high enough, above 15 degrees. Um, and we just barely got there by the end of May. Like, it was a really cool, cool, long spring here in the north. Um, so we got we got there. We got the bird sweeps done. We were just kind of praying that we were going to have a clear enough weekend and get enough drying days to be able to burn. And, before, and then really before it got too green, right? If we get too green, we're not going to get that burn response that we're looking for. So then we, uh, we got on site, everything looked good. Um, I think for, we also had BC wildfire actually supplied us a crew. And then we had a volunteer crew. There was a lot of ex forest firefighters as well. One of the conditions are for prescription was for each location. We needed a ground crew of three people with hand tools, hoses and pumps, uh, just to protect our guards that we needed to only one of the sites did we actually have to dig a fire guard. So we dug a guard kind of straight up the mountain on one of the sides. It had a bit more woody fuel and there was a edge of conifers on one side. And we just wanted to make sure that, you know, go, we said we were going to burn these locations and just wanted to make sure that we didn't overachieve and only burnt our desired locations. And even then, you know, looking at our whole prescription area, you know, we didn't even burn all of that. So I, we really wanted to keep it, you know, within what we said we were going to do. Uh, so, yeah, we worked really well and built that fire guard the first day. That was Monday, um, the 28th, the 29th, I believe. Yeah, the 29th. And then that afternoon, one of the sites actually looked really good. So we burnt the first site on the Monday. Uh, it was myself, uh, Dr. Heather Bryan, um, uh, land guardian from Fort Nelson, Jordan Turcotte. Uh, we had Ryan Dickey with uh, Winterhawk Wildlife or Winterhawk Studios uh, filming and taking pictures for us. Uh, yeah, and Alicia got in the chopper. We had a jet ranger. They got a little machine with 
drops the ping pong balls. It injects the balls with glycol and they drop. And she likes it because you can really control your speed. You can start dropping balls faster. You can slow the chopper up and down. And the way they kind of work in areas, they'll kind of do their your edges first and you kind of light the top half and then light the bottom half and let it burn up into your top half. So like watching it isn't like watching a forest fire. It's like watching a fire crawl and do its job. Um, you know, it's pretty interesting. And the way she does it is just so, you know, it's, it's very well thought out and just so effective. Um, uh, Russell Vickers, our pilot, I mean, he's just so experienced. Um, he makes it easy. And then Jody Myers, Alicia's new assistant was able to help. And it's kind of, there's a lot happening in there. You know, they're feeding, she's feeding her the balls. She's trying to figure out where she is on the location. We're looking behind her to see how easy everything's lighting up, uh, keeping a track of wind direction. Um, there's just so much going on. And then we strapped a GoPro to her helmet so we could see the balls dropping. So it was pretty neat. Uh, yeah, it was just great to see. And then it's kind of nice to see that moment where like everything we've been working for for the last four years and finally we got some fire in the ground and smoke in the air. And then um, later that night we went back to camp and kind of made a big game plan for the next day. We, st- we Your burn window, you're not really going to be burning before noon, uh, before we get you know, the sun warms that air temperatures up enough. You kind of have those thermal lifts. So you kind of can know your fire direction is going to be going up. Um, but you can have such a dew overnight that you need to kind of be later in the day before you can light it up. Um, we did have a bunch of vegetation work to do. So like say me and the doctor, we went and spent the day in collecting vegetation samples. We actually did what's a, a pellet transex. So on these areas <clears throat> for, for all the burns, we'll have two areas. One's the burn location and one's a control zone. And on each one, we have uh, trail cams that monitor for motion to see what's using it. And then we also have time-lapse cameras on an adjacent pink peak looking at that aspect, seeing what's on it, monitoring the snow. Like we're looking at the weather, monitoring how much snow is on it, what's using it, when are they using it, uh, just all for for data collection. And then also on the sites, we're doing the vegetation samples and we're doing pellet transects. And what that means is pretty much a four meter wide by 200 meter long area where you go and like hand pick the poop off and get it all clear, burn or not burn on the controls and then go back or go back in July and we'll see our pellet count on these areas. And that'll give us a few things like we've been getting lots of pellet samples for hormone testing to see the stress levels in the sheep, but it'll also just tell us the usage. Like we kind of expect to see a lot more sheep on the burnt or pellets on the burnt area rather than the control area, which, you know, that'll be uh, a finding as well. And then, so we got to spend the day doing vegetation work and then by the afternoon we were ready to burn. So it was, pretty neat we got to park up on a hillside adjacent and watch kind of them do their work and took a time lapse of the whole burn and it's like two hours and it's over you know you can still see a couple chimneys and hot spots that one like i say that's the one we did the fire guard on and it had quite a bit of woody debris i think that one probably would have burned burnt about 12 years ago 
So I had a bit of debris on it and it was amazing. Like when you're in it, the, we were digging that fire gut. There was aspens and, you know, saplings over our head. Like it's amazing how fast, you know, a forest can grow up, especially like a poplar and aspen forest, like 25 years, you can have a big mature, big timber in there. So digging through that and like looking at the areas and seeing you're looking at, you can see these nice little outcroppings and where there'd normally be sheep beds, but connected all through that is this like six to eight foot small suckers. And it's so thick, like you can't see 40 yards. So imagine being a sheep in there when it leafs out and then the ground's not getting as much sun for the grass to grow. You see a wolf and it's like 40 yards away. <laughs> you know, you don't got much time to kind of get to your escape train. So it's pretty tight quarters and we just don't see sheep living in when it's like that they'll pick somewhere else and even if like sheep don't need one thing alicia always says too is like sheep don't need uh quantity they need quality and a sheep can make a living on a pretty small footprint as long as it's got you know good good groceries and good visibility and everything else so it's kind of neat to be in these areas that we're treating and just like look at at, you know, really what we are doing. And then to go back through it after we burnt and kind of see that effect, you can see we had barely even touched the duff layer on top. Like we burnt that fuel, we got the nutrient dump, but there was some flowers that were too green and didn't burn and they still bloomed, you know? And like we were walking through these the next day, putting out hot spots, and it was just so neat to see how the fire works. Like it's not just a, a clean sweep, like the fire will crawl. Um, there's area like, it's not, I don't know how to describe it. It's not just a, a swipe across the landscape. It works different severities and across, across the whole piece. And I think that we'll see it when we go in in July and kind of see how much of that aspen we killed off, whether it's 20%, 60%, like what leafs out, you know, walking through it, I could, I could break some of them off. They were quite brittle. And then some, you know, looked like they stayed alive. So, and I think, you know, that's all right. I think our effectiveness was really good there. Uh, we definitely didn't overachieve on the heat anyway. So that's, that's the positive. And then later that day, we were able to light up the two more sites. So we did the three on the 30th and yeah, and everything looked really good. We kind of had a good party that night with all our volunteers and, and the wildfire crew and the doctor and Alicia and Russell, and it was just great. And then we went back the next morning and kind of cleaned up all the hot spots. I made sure anything that was still smoldering didn't have a path to fuel, uh, dug out a lot of roots and kind of, yeah, just made sure it was safe. I think that's, that's what I'm looking forward to now is I like going back over in July and like seeing all the flowers, deep grass, uh, seeing sheep there would be great, but like, the proof will be in the pudding at the end of the project when we start to see, you know, measure that usage, measure the stress levels in the sheep can say that, you know, ewes are, are wintering easier, lambing more relaxed, uh, providing for their young good. So that'll be the real award when we can actually start to piece that together. But yeah, super exciting times. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Like I, I was so excited and, and I, you know, having been sort of watching this from the sidelines and watching all the work that you've been doing and watching the evolution of, you know, you know, this obstacle comes up and then you pivot and 
and you adapt there. But there's a few things I want to dig into um, with that specifically. You, you said that that first year you pulled off a successful burn and then it changed. Can you talk a little bit about what you think? Why is it so much more difficult? Is there a different approach to wildfire? You know, we all know that it's pretty well documented that in the old days, you know, a lot of outfitters would kind of do their own burns or, you know, there was sort of uh, burns that were done to benefit and it worked really well. And, and First Nations um, did a ton of work on the landscape that was really effective as well. Um, but now that's all kind of changed. So can you can you kind of highlight on why that is? Is it so regulatory? Is it so many restrictions? Is it because fires caused problems in the past? I'm just curious to know what the driver on some of that is, if you, if you know. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I don't know if I can say, uh, you know, put a finger on it. I'll kind of give you what, what I've seen. And that's <clears throat> in the 1960s. And when we talk about, um, I guess, the North and the North being as, as an ecosystem, most would say, that say the MK or the Northern Rockies or even, you know, Peace Liard and Stikine was uh, pretty well balanced 1960s, uh, prior to 1960s. And, and a lot of things started to change after the 1960s. There was the Williston Reservoir. Uh, there was starting to be more prescribed fire. There was predator programs so there's so there and like many other things, you know, just the development of agricultural and oil and gas and forestry all along the edges of the mountains, like all these things had a big effect and they all happened at the same time. So one thing that I've heard is that, you know, through the sixties, I think, I think there started to be some good fires in the north in the north and lots of these were very big scale keep that in mind like thousands of hectares and right from the bottom of the mountain to the top maybe there wasn't as much concern for riparian areas like just you know dropping matches and a lot of you can say good things came from that you know um i think one of the things that you know, even the ministry saw at the time when they were going in to like start helping put out these wildfires, they started to look at like, hey, this is having a huge benefit for wildlife populations. So I think that kind of helped carry it for a few years, the burn programs. And and like we've we've all seen it. Like wildlife will boom and flourish after, especially when there's no access through it, right? I think areas like where you do have these big wildfires across the province and there's a still all the access through it, like Maybe wildlife doesn't have an easy time there, but over time it will, you know, as that grows back up, um, you know, it doesn't just come a open, open landscape where you can see an animal from so far away or whatever. But so I think, you know, over time, seeing all those other factors come to thing. I think the biggest thing is caribou, like the lot seeing the loss of caribou. And I'm not sure if we can, you know, some will, some will say it's, oh, that's caused by fire, fire increased elk populations, elk increased predation and predation killed caribou. And they're not entirely wrong, you know, but I don't think that's the whole picture either. Like, um, there wasn't, there was areas in the Northern Rockies where there wasn't elk populations before. Um, but still, even right now, there's areas where we haven't had bison 
populations in a long time and now there's bison populations and it's having an effect on sheep. So like it's constant evolution, right? And elk are one of those things that we don't have to worry about through climate change. Like elk will be fine. They're like coyotes. They'll just survive. Whereas caribou, they kind of need that leg. So it's like, all right, if you're going to, their defense mechanism from predation is to live somewhere that it wasn't worth predators to go and get them. Like it was just too much energy spent, right? Now, if we don't have that and there's predation through all these areas due to other increases and changes, whether it's the Williston Reservoir, you know, increased elk populations due to fire and all these other things. So I think, I think one of the things that really changed in 2018 was that the government just realized, Hey, like we're responsible for a caribou recovery and we're going to stop doing anything detrimental to caribou. And that was the biggest thing. So that's kind of where we took the pivot. It's like, okay, we need to stay away from elk sheep burns. Number one. Um, and, and there's other good reasons for it too. Like where we do see elk and sheep living lost together, we have a way higher, uh, prevalence of ticks on sheep, you know? So I think there's other things that we could benefit from just maintaining that species separation as well. And that's kind of how we've designed our birds. They're like these tiny little areas, you know, 150 hectares all together, but all they're on these different spines and ridges, like high up in the escape terrain. And, you know, an elk might graze there for half a day, but it's not going to spend the winter. there. It's just not enough. They need a lot of, a lot of grass. They don't care about the quality as much. They just want quantity, whereas elk want the quality or sheep want the quality. Sorry. So I think, I think that was the big thing is that government realized they were on the hook for caribou recovery and just like stop everything that was detrimental to, to, to caribou. I think, I think that's pretty safe assumption. So then it was like, all right, can we build something that's like sheep specific, uh, not going to affect caribou, not going to affect elk and, and kind of go from there. So that was kind of like where, where we started, I guess. Cool. Okay. So what, what are we talking? So you did, you said you had a four of 11 polygons that you lit, um, this year, um, and you talked about you did 28 sites in 2021. Um, what kind of numbers are we talking about? So just so our listeners know, you know, in terms of cost, you know, what is it? And I guess timelines, because really, um, I guess the, the key takeaway for our listeners is that you just don't fly out in the helicopter and drop some fireballs and call it good. This this has literally been a four-year process for you, um, for the society, and tons of regulatory hurdles. Um burn plans, polygons, approvals, um, and then operational, um, and then monitoring, and then the cost of all that. So talk a little bit about, you know, the whole process. And you have touched on it, but I, I think people don't realize how complex this whole issue is and how much work's involved with it. Yeah, yeah. And it's expensive. And and I think that's a problem. Like, we've kind of shaped this and to help with that cost, we've made it into like a scientific project where there's going to be some great outcomes, but you know, using a fire as a management tool doesn't need to be this way. It doesn't need to be this rigorous. It doesn't need to be this expensive. And I think we'll kind of see that as we start to see some of the cultural, cultural fire developments over the future. And I, th- I think there's, there's a huge appetite across BC for prescribed fire, you know, uh, I think as far as BC fire crews, like that's starting the season earlier for them. So making a seasonal job last a little longer is great. 
it's better training for people. It's community protection because we're reducing that fuel load. We're creating more diversity because we're chopping up the landscape into all these little different burnt aspects. And that's going to cause forest protection in many ways too. If you have these areas that are already burnt, you're going to protect that stand next to it that's not burnt. Um, so but it's expensive. I think I'd, I don't know all the numbers off the top of my head. I have to go back all over it, but you know, year one, I think it's probably pretty depressing on what we spent per hectare to burn. And, and, but that's the thing keep in mind, this is all helicopter access. And lots of this is produce a lot of things for us as far as like the monitoring, uh, having all, having the two years of data, you know, last year, wild sheep foundation through the grant aid program, gave us this is the second year they they've paid for our eight march and april flights for recruitment and so what we're doing is flying all these locations uh looking where the sheep are counting what they are like as far as male female you like or lamb uh it's pretty slick like we fly these areas we don't have to get too close we use a long range camera lens and snap a picture and then we can go back and really classify them. And that's the biggest part is really getting a good classification so that we're not calling something a lamb that's a, that's a, you like, like a two year old or, and kind of, so we can say what our recruitment is. That's the biggest thing is measuring our success properly. Right. So even out of that, we were able to cover, you know, right from 752, 751, 750, 757, 742, like all these areas in 7B for recruitment. That's a huge cost. And that's all taken care of. So I think, you know, the whole thing has been pretty expensive, but every year now that we have starting to get these things in the queue, the price is going to come down and down and down and down. But, you know, fire doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, all it takes is one match, you know, uh, but it's how that match is used, whether it's done in the right time of year with the right intentions, uh, with the right safeguards in place. But I think a lot of this project and the expense is just, you know, trying to answer some bigger questions and that, and as you know, trying to manage the project, it's just, that's why we have to pivot. It's like, okay, we can't do this. So we have to add this piece into it, whether it's the bird sweeps or the, the vegetation analysis, the monitoring, like we're committed to getting this done. So it's like, all right, you tell me the hurdle I need to jump over and we'll jump over it. And we kind of got to the end to where there was no more hurdles. It's kind of what took two years. Um, and I think there's enough groups now, like there's enough, there's enough support from first nations, from academia, from, you know, conservationists, from government that, that, you know, things are really starting to move and this project has kind of taken a life of its own. So I think it's going to be, I think it'll be successful. It'll be really good. But same thing as always, like it's hundred dollars to step up, get it rolling. And we're always the first ones to the plate and seem the ones that actually stick our neck out to do it. You don't see anyone else doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just curious, uh, Halfway was obviously involved, and you talked about Lyle being on the flight with you there. Um, are, are they? Uh, how, how did that work? Like it was a lot of uh, First Nations um, discussion around that. 
um, or were they just kind of, hey, we're good with it, we're on board, or, or how, what, what was, I guess, that relationship, and what did that look like? And you talked about Ford Nelson as well. Yeah, well, and they're just they're just two. Like we within the north, we have Treaty Eight, we have Casca, and the North Central. And then we have Three Nations, which is Taltan, Taku, and Clinket over on the on the northwest. So through the project, and I don't know, just kind of reading, you know the what's happening and and to see a successful project we we were i was reaching out to them so it started just like with emailing um we do have we do had did have some great contacts with with some for uh halfway uh land management and that and that's the thing like all these is like i've cold emailed cold called land managers from all different groups just say hey this is what we're doing just want to make you aware and that leads to you know can you tell us more about it uh, to, Hey, we'd like to be involved more to, you know, just the whole aspect. And I think all these different governments, whether it's first nation government, our gov- provincial government, like they all have different levels of capacity to help. Um, you know, Lyle through halfway, just like I say, is a resource for what's happened over the last 65 years in the North around fire. There's a lot of people that have a lot of knowledge around fire for, like I say, since since the 60s. And it's kind of bridging the gap between that and, you know, current government officials and, cur- you know, working within government to say that, you know, what's happened over the past. They might bring somebody new in. They're going to look at the data and be like, okay, fire's bad. You know, like, let's not do that anymore. And trying to build that nuance between the two but like i say fort nelson uh all of treaty eight we've had conversations with whether it was just us emailing them and saying hey this is what we're doing you know sometimes you don't get anything back sometimes you do and we've just like i say we had good support from from quite a few um and then you know how to carry that over uh conversation with casca the upcoming ipa um, what's habitat management going to look like? Um, all these things on all these areas have different layers of management plans. Like we have the Fort St. John land, or land and range management plan, the Fort Nelson land and range management plan, uh, Musquaukee management plan, BC Parks management plan. They all have pieces in there that talk about habitat improvement, and it's kind of trying to work within those management plans but also trying to hold them accountable to the management plans uh, saying, you know, so you saying you do this, but here we are acting on it and probably wouldn't be too ashamed to say that BC parks really needs to step up there. We got a problem in BC parks. That's for sure. Yep. So that'll be the next focus. We've been focusing with ministry, which is now, you know, I'm really happy to say like Aviva Jones through, through the ministry has been, great to work with i mean she she works from her side and i think has been a key part in actually getting these to where they are and now seeing how the ministry of stewardship is gonna play a role and then forestry still has the authority but kind of working with more ministries now um we'll see how it goes so still like we're in uncharted territory again like going forward this change our approvals were all done when it was flinroe uh, next year, we'll see what it looks like through forestry and stewardship. So, 
more uncharted territory. So you've been working for a number of years on this and, and you finally managed to do the four polygons this year. Um, you talked about the 11 originally and then um, 28 this past year. So I guess it's, it does, it doesn't work. There's no fall burns. That just does not happen in the North. That's, that's correct. Right. Fall burns from what I understand would be good for like moose. And the biggest risk of fall burns is you're removing that food source throughout the winter. All right. So you're effectively taking, taking forage away uh, from the animals in certain areas. And do they have enough, adjacent to that or where they are to sustain them through the winter. But the thing with fall burns is you can really stimulate that willow growth. So if you're looking at a moose burn, like critical in moose habitat, and then there's, they're like you say across the province, moose winter in different kinds of areas. Like some moose wintered in town, eating people's tulips and licking your cars all winter long. And some moose live in these forests with, you know, old growth timber that has a big canopy, but there's aspens and, and willows underneath where they can, you know, uh, browse with low snowpack. And then you get to areas like where there's just these big red willow flats and it's kind of like open, uh, open hillside and the moose can winter and there's not a tree in sight. Right. So, uh, fall burns, not for sheep. There's not, this just doesn't suit sheep habitat at all. Uh, we're just removing the for- forage at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I think back to the question, just the sites too, like when we started this, uh, it was just us in a whiteboard, right? And it's like, we're, I'm looking at this map of the, uh, be, like the distribution of sheep across the north. And it's like, you know, if we if we took this area and say, and it was just an arbitrary number, but we picked nine, 90 sites. If we could find 90 sites, come up with a prescription plan, um, you know, say that that's a critical piece of habitat within this area, then you kind of start to fill in a lot of the small dots. And I think it's not as important. Like we've been pretty good, like one burn here, one burn there over a long time. But like, if we can kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like <laughs> scatter, scatter it across, sprinkle, sprinkle goodness all across the north a little bit here, you know, not just one here, one there. Uh, it's kind of came up with 90 sites and that'll really fill in a lot of, a lot of good quality stuff over the whole north, I guess. And how, what time, like what type of time frames are we talking? Like if you, if you were to come up with those 90 sites, I know you don't have that number yet. Um, wh- when would you look to get that done? Is that over like two years, 20 years, 50 years? What are you thinking? Well, right now we've designed the project for five years. This will be a five-year project. And I think our intention would be to have those 90 sites uh, identified by the f- end of the fifth year. So like with that original 11, I guess I haven't decided like, oh, we're going to count those. Like seven of those 11 got approved. Then we have to, we still have to go back. Okay. Like w- going forward tell us why those four other ones didn't like what what did what did we not like about it uh that way we can avoid selecting that similar situation in the future and not waste our time building these applications that aren't going to go anywhere and then you know so it to date now we've applied for 39 so over five years that's not hard to think that we can get to that 90 or to get to 90 approved sites um but then yeah so i mean this is and this is this is kind of that's where we started 
this is still all, you know, this, we still get input from our funders through ACTF, through the technical review, through the government biologists, like, you know, it, uh, how this is shaped going forward, we'll see. But that was just my personal goal is just to kind of scatter the love across the north as much as we could. So we'll see where we get to. Right now, like I say, we've got 39 in there. Uh, seven were approved. We'll see how many of the 28 from 20, uh, 2021 get approved. You know, if it's maybe 20, maybe 15. And just keep keep going forward. Keep identifying the sites, uh, putting them in the system, and seeing where they come out. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Awesome, dude. That's, that's fantastic. I just, congratulations on, on all that you've done and uh, really excited to see where this goes over the next five years. And, and uh, I'm really encouraged to see what, you know, things look like maybe this later this year with, uh, you know, the habits at work, what it looks like if there's sheep on it. And then certainly in the, in the future, really, because obviously part of this, you guys will be monitoring as well and seeing the outcomes, right? Yeah. There'll definitely be sheep on them. Like we pick these areas because there's sheep there. But, you know, trying to measure that usage too, right? And then see, actually see the benefit in recruitment. And then, like I say, it's all until until we kind of put all that data, data together after five years and a grad student kind of presents it, we'll see where it is. Um, yeah, it's awesome, man. Like, I enjoyed it so much. Like, like I say, growing up with fire and then, like, spending so much time in sheep country over the years, like, I enjoyed like it was, it was like, it was like a hunt. Like it was a grind. Like there was very little sleep. We're still climbing mountains every day. Uh, you got things, you know, there was, there was a permit complication, like same day, like Monday we had a permit complication. It's like, Oh, can we still burn? Like it was down to the wire. Right. So there was, it was just intense. And I just, I don't know. I think, Lots of these areas, like the three that we didn't burn this year because they had too much snow, those permits should still be good. Like we shall be able to get approvals for those in future years now. And that was the whole idea is that we have these sites across the north, like whatever whatever is works for one year might not work another year. So like if we need to I'll fall into those conditions, we can jump up to the Kachika or come down to you know round toad or whatever right so try to balance that out and work our way over there so hopefully next year burn season is like three weeks long you know because we're gonna have that many sites to do and we'll be all over the map which will be exciting but it's a lot of logistics and it's a lot of work uh it's freaking awesome man <laughs> i love it that's awesome okay cool so now i'm gonna segue um love talking burns but um have you been sheep hunting lately or what's going on with that Oh yeah, a little bit last year. So, <laughs> <laughs> so are you going to talk about it or what? Um, and what's going on? There? Apparently, there's some sort of film or something. So, can you talk a little bit more? What's going on? Tell me. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. I had I was blessed by the the, the uh, draw gods there. I've always I feel like I've always been pretty lucky. But um, yeah, I drew some great tags last year. Uh, did a bit of sheep hunting. There was an opportunity to make a film. So there is a film that hopefully should be done like this week. Uh, we still don't know how exactly we're rolling it out or when we're rolling it out. But yeah, I did some sheep hunting and had a pretty awesome crew of family and friends with me. It was a pretty special hunt and it's a pretty special tag and a pretty special place. Uh, yeah, I think I won't give too much more than that for now, <laughs> but uh, it'll be it'll be rolling out here. So keep your eyes peeled. 
don't know. It'll be fun. I don't know. It's kind of one of those things. Like I watch it now, and there's like uh, there's like cringe moments in it. I've watched it like forty times, trying to put it all together as we go through it. But it's kind of like one of those things. It's done. Let it fly. See how it goes. But it kind of had. We kind of had a purpose behind it. Like we didn't want to just make a movie. We really wanted to make something that was like. I think something in the hunting film world that I don't feel like I'm getting around not seeing and something that I really wanted to see. It's kind of like that hunting slash conservation documentary almost. Um, so we kind of special, the whole movie isn't really about me. It's kind of focusing on a sheep herd the whole time I'm running around with a recurve bow trying to hunt these things. And then we kind of bring in these different experts and interview them throughout the hunt and, no, it's just real special. I don't know. It's kind of, I don't know, very honored to do it. Uh, but we'll see how it is and see see how it's received, I guess. But I think the thing was to promote that herd, uh, promote funding, like conservation funding through raffles. Um, yeah, I don't know. Pretty excited. And then see what, you know, I think I might get some luck again this year. You never know. Like, <laughs> stuff should be out here in the next few weeks and maybe a month or whatever. But I feel, I feel lucky again, man. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm not stopping. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm glad I wasn't basing this podcast on talking about your, your draw and about your sheep hunt last year. That was a little skinny, but uh, fair enough. We'll wait for the movie. And well, I'm super stoked say, to see it myself. I got, uh, I got like once in a lifetime dream lucky by a good draw and everything worked out just as it should have, I guess. I don't know. It was, uh, that's all. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any particular questions? I don't know. No, we'll, we'll save it. Once, uh, once the film drops, we'll get you on again and we'll talk about the film. Cause, uh, uh I get it. I get that you guys are doing something special and you want to, you got a story behind it and you're going to save it for that. We'll, we'll touch on that. So, uh, wasn't, I, I didn't want to put you on the spot. Too just much, like anything, like just like hunting or whatever. Like I've just learned, I just never talk about anything until it's done. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, fair enough. Just, that seems to, that seems to be working for me so far. Don't talk about it till you've done it. Cool. Awesome. Well, hey, man, we've taken an hour of your day, and I know you're a busy guy there with tanneries and work and kids and conservation and a hundred other things. So just appreciate all you do, brother, and uh, really excited that these uh, these burns came together this year and uh, just can't wait to see more of this and doing the great conservation work in the north that we need to do. Yeah, man. And I don't know if we can plug, like, I'll plug it, like uh, some of this stuff takes so much money. Uh, and I think, I think the money, the money is there, but like from our supporters and our members, like your guys' memberships, like mean a lot to us. Like our member are from all our members that are listening or if you buy raffle tickets, if you buy swag at our store, like everything you guys do, like helps us do our job on the board and to be in a place now where we can take action on things that come up is just, it's an honor and a privilege. So really, man, we're blessed for the supporters we have. And if you're not a member, then what are you waiting for? And if you haven't bought raffle tickets, you're crazy. And, you know, like get in. That's, that's like I say many times, if, if you can't be involved on a time, then, you know, you can help out with your wallet a little bit. And I really think we're leading the way in a lot of ways on the sheep stuff. Um, 
and just how an NGO tries to get work, meaningful work done. I think, I think that's one thing we're just working really good. And we got a real diverse board, you know, we got representation from mostly all over corners of the province. Um, I don't know. It's just a great group, man. It's an honor. It's uh, everyone's doing their thing and not just the people on the board, like even Steve over there, like he's, he's been a part of us a long time. He's not elected, but there's a lot of people doing a lot of great things. So cheers guys. Good, good for Good on all of us. Yeah. Well said buddy. And you know, absolutely. That's uh, and you know, you bring that point up about our members and about our donors and supporters and that, that absolutely is uh, you know, yeah, there's all these pieces that are important and, and that's without the money, there's nothing right. Conservation's not free. Um, We hear that all the time. And this is a, a fine example. You know, you, we've got six figures invested in these burns and we're just getting going. And um, so, yeah, without the support of our members and donors and everyone. Um, and so anyone as that's keen on it, right now we've got that Corlane rifle, that RMR rifle uh, raffle going on right now. And I think there's about four weeks left on that thing. And uh, that money is going straight back in the north, and it's that's the stuff that allows us to do this burn, right? So, um, yeah, you're right. Our members make that happen. If without them, there's no burn. It doesn't happen. So, hundred percent. And yeah, everything else we're trying to do. Uh, the only other thing I want to thank, uh, I should probably thank everybody. Definitely Alicia Woods. Like she's stuck right by us all this time. Like even as a contractor, like. <laughs> other people would have given up long before if they didn't believe how important this and meaningful this work is too. Um, Russell Vickers or pilot like yellowhead helicopters is given us a lot of in-kind donation, you know, this fuel, this fuel that's part of the logistics to get delivered to all these different areas that when we just land and fill up out of a barrel, like that's stuff that we're not paying for. Right. Like there's a lot of big work going done, getting done there. Uh, UNBC, Dr. Heather Bryan, like just, uh, I think that's going to be a great relationship going forward and just have that academia side uh, and us working along beside, whether it's this project or into other future projects. Um, Habitat Conservation Trust Fund, like always supporting, like any other funder probably could have dropped us, but just to hang in there with us, give us advice, uh, help us keep moving forward. Uh, Bill Jacks, like he's always a source for just great information and, I've called him and picked his brains a couple times and, you know, uh, just, it's been, been great. Um, BC wildfire service, they just show their support. I mean, they're eager to help. They want to see these fires be taking place across, being across BC. So, uh, just great relationship building there. Those are hardworking guys. They're protecting communities all summer long. Like they're trained, they're professional, they're tough as nails, man. Some of these guys. Um, our volunteers that showed up, it was good. Uh, halfway First Nations, uh, Fort Nelson First Nations, Prophet River First Nations, uh, Sickney River Ranch gave us a good donation to stay there. Um, yeah, man, feel blessed if I missed anybody. I'm really sorry. Uh, Robin always wants me to mention his name. Hey, buddy. Love you. <laughs> you know, me and Robin have spent many times just like the hours we've talked about how to actually achieve some of this stuff uh, has been good. So I don't know, man. Yeah. It's uh, I feel like I don't deserve uh, a lot of thanks because so many people have had a role in this, I guess. 
but yeah, thanks everyone. It's good, good stuff happening. Well, one one thing about it is you need you need somebody to to lead. You need somebody to ha- have the fire, right? And um, you know, you you had the organization behind you, but you had the fire. Like you were you were driven, and this was this was going to happen one way or another. And uh, and you, you know, you carried out on it. You stuck with it after like years and years. And there was times where you know most people would have given up, like you said. Even the contractors were, you know even though they're there in a paid capacity, they're, they're losing faith and you kept driving and especially as a volunteer. So hats off to you. And yeah, it's awesome, man. Really awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, man. We're sheep hunters. We don't give up very easy. Normally, if you do, you're not a very good sheep hunter. <laughs> you, <laughs> might, you might only be like yeah. the Jack O'Connor's never set a foot on the mountain again, kind of thing. It's kind of learn and relearn, but, uh, and that's what directors do, man. That's what I like about the director job is there's not really a, there's not a right or wrong way to do it. I feel like I'm just connecting dots and moving things forward as best I can, I guess. But yeah, man, it's an honor. Very cool, Matt. Well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to more great stuff. And we'll have you back on once we uh, once this great film drops. We can chat more about uh, hunting stories next time as opposed to conservation. Or a I'm little ex- of both, I guess. I'm excited. And, uh, yeah, I'm very private on my hunting side. Eh? I try not to but I'm excited for this. I hope everyone enjoys it, but yeah. Awesome. I'm definitely not that comfortable in front of the camera. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. Maybe it'll be a flop, but I don't know. No, I don't think so. Awesome. Thanks buddy. (laughs) Later guys.